0: 13 war, we, children, we, As Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine enters its second month, Russia's troops remain bogged down outside Kyiv and other major cities, unable to advance and plagued by low morale and logistical failures. US President Joe Biden meanwhile is in Europe with stops in Brussels and Warsaw to bolster the Western alliance and coordinate its next moves in defense of Ukraine. And as civilian casualties mount amid a brutal and indiscriminate bombing campaign, so does evidence that Russia is committing war crimes. So stick around, we've got a lot to discuss. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky-Adams-Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines magazine, contributing editor at the Beast and Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's been too long. It has. Good to be back, Brian. Good to, good to have you back. And I understand your new book is going to be about the GRU. Am I correct?
1: Uh, yeah. And I mean, it's about half done and uh, I have a very kind and patient publisher who called me to say, why don't you take a few more months to, <laughs> to do the second half? Given
0: the state of the world. So, well, um, no, it's, uh, I mean, the world's changing and we're going to have to change what we're writing. So it's just going to be the two of us this week, Michael. And I, I thought I'd, we'd just have a free-flowing conversation about the developments in Ukraine as Putin's sure. war of choice enters its second month. Um, and I wanted to hit three broad themes in the program that I introduced in in the intro there. The situation on the ground in Ukraine. President Biden's trip to Europe and mm-hmm. the U.S. government formally accusing Russia of war crimes in Ukraine. Um, so let's let's start with the first. The situation on the ground. I mean, as of this recording on Thursday afternoon, Russian forces have still not taken any major Ukrainian city except for Kherson. Uh, mm-hmm. Ukraine is claiming that is that it has actually taken back territory outside Kyiv and is considering trying to retake Kherson. Um, and there have been reports of logistical failures and uh, low morale among the Russian troops. Michael, you track the day to day pretty closely. What are you seeing and how do you interpret it at this point?
1: I think it's a very fair price you just gave um i'm seeing evidence that the russian forces uh to the northwest of kiev are nearly encircled there's been a massive counteroffensive that the ukrainians have been mounting since early this week and it seems to be paying dividends i mean you even have uh, pentagon uh press briefings suggesting that they're now kind of pressing the fight to the russians in terms of i mean you're quite right Kherson is the only real population center that the russians are occupying but I wouldn't say, I mean, the term that gets thrown around in the media is it's it's, it's a Russian-controlled city. Well, I, I'm reminded of that line from Bain in The Dark Knight Rises. Do you feel in charge? Uh, because if you, look, if you look at social media, videos, images coming out of uh, Kherson, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. You've got civilians running up to armed soldiers and basically telling them to F off back to Russia, including babushkas like running up mm-hmm. to to. Uh, Kamka's trucks and stuff. Uh, So this is a very restive population Mm -hmm. not submitting to the Russian yoke quite easily, easily. certainly not to the degree that I think uh, Vladimir Putin and his general staff had anticipated or perhaps Uh, At least certain elements in the security services briefed the presidential administration that they were going to be greeted with chocolates and flowers and as the emancipators in in this so-called denazification campaign. So, yeah, things are not going well for Russia and even in the one place where they're mercilessly bombarding and besieging uh, Mariupol. Uh, I've seen reports, credible reports, that this has become. I mean, choose your historical analog. Stalingrad. I would. I would even go farther back to Madrid, 1936. Uh, street fighting, intense urban combat, uh, house to house, building to building, kind of thing. Um, and there's a pretty fierce resistance even there. So. Yeah, I mean, I, anyone who's, who, who thinks that this is this is kind of a, a, a cakewalk or even, frankly, a, a competent military campaign that's been waged by Moscow, I'd love to know what they're reading. It's probably foreign ministry talking <laughs> points because I'm just seeing the opposite.
0: Well, yeah, and now and then we, that, that those casualty figures that came out yesterday, the NATO estimates, which are based mm-hmm. on Ukrainian estimates and their own intelligence, say somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000 uh, deaths dead, um, which is a remarkably high number. Um, even the it low is. end of that is higher than the U.S. lost in 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Um, and it's even approaching or, or exceeding what, what Russia lost in Afghanistan itself over 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 10 years. What do those, those death figures tell you?
1: And I, I have to say, I think that's the lower end of the spectrum of these estimates. I mean, look, what I've noticed in, in the last four weeks is um, European intelligence services, particularly those that come from former Warsaw Pact or even former former countries that were part of the Soviet empire, are much more forward footed in their assessments about this war. Um, you know, the Baltic states, for instance, their intelligence services pretty much exist for one reason. Uh, they have one preternatural security national security concern, and that is Russia. So their experts have spent the last 30 years studying the Russian security services, the Russian military. The assessments I was getting in real time from, say, the Estonians uh, suggested uh, something along what we're now hearing two weeks mm. down from the Pentagon, from NATO. Um, so that tells me that I think even what the Pentagon and what NATO is saying are, are slightly out of date. Maybe they've spent the last couple of weeks kind of verifying and checking the intelligence. The Ukrainians, and I, I've had a, a bee in my bonnet about this from the beginning, and I've I've I finally have some clarity because I, I did get it confirmed from the Ukrainian MOD. They've been putting out these stats. Now, they the equipment losses on the Russian side, a lot of this seems to be inflated or at least let let us say charitably not verified yet. Um, you know, Oryx, the, the open source intelligence block, which is tracking losses on both sides. Claims that you know the, the Ukrainians will say they shot down 90 fixed-wing aircraft or whatever, and they, there's nothing to suggest they hit that many. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that they're not perhaps mistaking taking out missiles mm-hmm. uh, or drones and considering that along the lines of there goes another Sukhoi or MiG. But the one thing that, that I've paid close attention to is Ukrainian figures on personnel losses. When Ukrainians talk about personnel losses on the Russian side, and I have this now confirmed, they are conflating casualties and fatalities. So, in other words, killed in action, wounded in action, and in some cases now POWs, but also desertions, all get bundled into this one figure, which is now upwards of 15,000. Yep. Right. Um, if you were to take what the pentagon is now saying or what nato intelligence is saying let's just, let's just for the sake of argument take the the most kind of extreme number of fifteen thousand killed in action well the typical ratio of kia to to wounded in action or to casualties is uh one to three in right. this war i would say that ratio is actually going to be much different because the russians have been incompetent all across the board they simply have not got the medevac capability. They don't have the triage capability to care for their wounded on the battlefield. So a lot of people who get injured are going to die of their, their, of their wounds. They're going to bleed out. They're just not going to get mm. the proper medical attention. So you're looking at, at a situation in which, as of right now, it is not beyond the realm of plausibility. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I say Russia may have had, in terms of total battlefield losses, so combat inoperable soldiers, between 40 and 50,000.
0: Yeah, and that's what NATO is NATO's, that's exactly what NATO's estimating at the moment. Yeah, um,
1: so, I mean, and that's a month, that's a right. month. How much longer can Putin go on with, with, with this without having severe manpower shortages? And keep in mind, Brian, the first guys that were sent in, remember that that, that blitzkrieg operation to Sakiv within 48 or 72 hours, whatever the American assessment was uh, over a month ago, who did he send in? He sent in Gru Spetsnaz and VDV paratroopers, the elite of the elite. And they got wiped out. Right. So who got left? Conscripts, eighteen-year-old kids from right. you know Chelyabinsk who who don't even know right. they're being sent off to war. Like this is not this is not a a functioning campaign.
0: Well, the other thing, Michael, that's jumping out at me, and maybe you can shed some light on this. You've covered a lot of wars in your day. I mean, six or is it six or seven general officers,
1: which have been killed. So, Allegedly, that's unheard of. I'm, unheard I'm of. waiting. I'm waiting on copper bottom proof. Some of them have been confirmed from the Russian side, so let's assume those guys are are, are taken out. But yeah, it, isn't it extraordinary? I mean, what what modern war can you name where I, you know I, even five generals in the field, uh, flag officers, just wiped out? I mean, why are they putting their their top What command? are generals doing so close to the front line? That's very well, unusual. Well, exactly, and it suggests to me that there is a great deal of. Agenda about command and control and also keeping the forces in line. And I guess, you know, these guys, you know, even accounting for your typical corruption, uh, nepotism, you know, kind of bogus advancement up the ranks and the chain of command, they're still generals, right? So they're senior officers. If they're being deployed this close to the, the, the front lines or in, in, in essentially into kind of active combat operations, it probably suggests that, you know, the Russians are very wary about the, the guys who are doing the heavy lifting, you know, in right. terms of, their uh, capacity to simply walk off and defect or desert or, or I mean, basically not, not uh, carry out orders. And I can tell you this, and I'm, my next story I'm working on is what the Ukrainians are doing in terms of psychological operations to, to exacerbate this problem for the Russians. Leaflets that are being dropped behind enemy lines telling Russian soldiers, uh, here's a phone number to call. Be very calm, don't run away from your commanding officer but walk away slowly. Come to our side, we'll take care of you. We'll treat you properly, right. you'll be in any harm's way and you know, uh, they're offering $10,000 per Russian tank. So if you're a tankist and you just or a tank operator and you just kind of sit there and get out of the vehicle and hand it over to the Ukrainians, they're going to give you a $10,000 and take care of you. Um, I think the morale is so low on the Russian side that we, we re- really don't even have a full picture as to just how badly uh, you know, the ranks have been depleted and deteriorated. I think it's yeah. even worse than what, what you and I are looking at, just on social media. And yeah, and the,
0: the, there was an excellent piece in the Daily Beast yesterday about this, about looking at intercepts among Russian soldiers and about how yeah. they view the war. And that 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 was really revealing. The other thing I wanted to pick your brain on about this, Michael, is the um, the Ukrainian strategy. Much has been written about the you know the bad Russian war plan. They came in in yeah. too many vectors. They spread themselves too thin. Um, but what are the Ukrainians doing right here? What do you see the Ukrainians doing that 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 we could learn
1: from? So look, I, I've been talking to active duty US military, um, everyone from Air Force to Marines, because I'm, I'm not a military specialist. I, I've had to learn you know, what the hell a switchblade drone is and how it works. Uh, even today, I, 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 I heard a missile system mentioned, I thought it was another kind of model drone. So I have to check this stuff by people who know what they're talking about. But the, the, the consensus that I'm getting from how the Ukrainians have comported themselves is as follows. They were very smartly engaged in mobile defense, so in other words, drawing the Russians in, um, allowing them to overstretch themselves, not just in terms of combat units, but also the supply personnel, you know, support personnel, and then basically sending in Ukrainian special forces, saboteurs, also from territorial defense, to blow stuff up. So fuel trucks, ammunition, catch them while they were sleeping, you know, from around the corner kind of thing. So they've been doing a lot of that. Now, and I, I had had this from a, a U.S. Army colonel about, mm, I'd say, 10 days ago. He said, this is amazing. They're doing a great job. But if they don't start going on counteroffensives, they're going to lose the momentum. Mm-hmm. And Lord, that's exactly what they started to do. Yep. I mean, look at look at Kyiv Oblast. They are pushing right. the Russians right out of where they first came in uh, when the war was launched uh, four weeks ago. So it seems like they have very good training. And by the way, uh, and, and you know, uh, this is no secret. The US started really kind of training yep. up the Ukrainian military in around t- 2010. Uh, Mark Hurtling, who's a CNN contributor and you know, two-star general, a uh, uh, former uh, head of, I think, the Eighth Army or something. Uh, I've been talking to him a lot. He was there. Uh, he knows the Ukrainian military very, very well. He also knows the Russian military pretty well. And he says, look, these guys, we've been working for them with them for over a decade. And then obviously after Crimea was taken over in 2014 and, and the war- it intensified. I mean, the, the Ukrainians love American Green Berets. American Green Berets have gone over, trained up Ukrainian special forces, and they basically they say, please send more. <laughs> because right. we, have, we have so many troops who want to learn uh, these kinds of, of, of special operations tactics. So I think, look, uh, you know, America, the West— it didn't it didn't really seem this way in twenty fourteen when we were still in this not really frozen conflict, but a sort of a period of, of you know suspended animation in terms of Russia's conquest. But now we're seeing the the fruits that have been borne by extensive security cooperation between Ukraine and North America and Europe.
0: Now yes, yeah, so we're not just seeing a very poorly executed Russian war plan, we're seeing a very well executed Ukrainian defense plan. And this brings us to our our mutual friend General Ben Hodges, the former commander mm-hmm. of US Army Europe, and he recently put out a piece that got a lot of attention, uh, basically saying that the Russians are basically have a couple of weeks to get their act together. He says Russian generals are running out of time and ammunition and manpower. The Russians are in trouble and they know it. Is is our, our friend uh, General Ben Hodges being too optimistic here or is he on the mark in, in your opinion?
1: I mean, uh, look, I, uh, I try not to make predictions. I try to just make assessments based on all available evidence right now. I will say though, to bolster um, uh, General Hodges' assessment or his prediction, uh, New Lines magazine, my colleague Holger Renema, who's a brilliant Estonian investigative journalist, interviewed the head of Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service, who, and this was like two weeks ago, and uh, he based, essentially made much the same um, claim. He said that Russians, have, we think, have about two months of fight in them before they really start to, I mean, they, they would just run out of resources. The supply fuel all of the things food. they would need to keep across prosec- food I mean they didn't send their guys in with with MREs that were I mean the, the MREs that the Russian soldiers had were, were expired by years right um I have John Sweeney who's one of is an old-time BBC uh correspondent yeah. has been in Kiev for a month and he's done reporting suggesting that you know Russians who have taken over small villages around Kiev uh in the in Kiev Oblast are are going up to ukrainians begging for food because they're starving they didn't oh, yeah. they- Outfitted with with the, the proper supplies to to keep them alive, um we saw a captured one of those mobile sort of kitchen. I forget what the term of art is in the military, but basically a uh you know a portable commissary. Mm-hmm. The Ukraine captured it, and they said the state of this thing was just disgusting. It was like a Roach Motel. You know, you wouldn't feed this to your worst enemy, and the Russians, of course, are the Ukrainians' worst enemy. Right. So we're seeing yeah we're seeing ample evidence that look I mean I. I i think people are going to be studying the, the calamity of this adventure for years right and you, you see a lot of military analysts talking about well is it just because they're not prosecuting the war the way they should have done or is it because of corruption or is it because of uh, bad communication or putin was misfed or given bad intelligence i think corruption is certainly a part of it but again you know like in, in hindsight, I mean, you and I, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Russian kleptocracy, mm. oligarchic theft, the way that Putin's cronies have basically robbed the state and the people and then come to the West and spent their ill-gotten gains here because nobody wants to buy Russian products and all that. How is it possible that in the last 22 years, when every sector of Russian society and every institution, whether state or even non-state, has been rotted out with this pathology of corruption that Alexei Navalny created his political career on, on exposing, How is it possible that the Russian military was the one institution that somehow remained immune mm-hmm. to all, right? I mean, I think we're going to look back and see a lot of manifests, a lot of orders from the state budget that were meant to go to the MOD and on and export, and it simply just got expropriated. Right. By by crooked generals and majors and colonels and warrant officers.
0: Yeah, no, this is going to be interesting to look at going forward because, Michael, you know, the way I've often looked at this is that corruption was a force multiplier for Russia. They used Correct. it, they weaponized it to undermine the West. Here we're seeing it's uh, what's the opposite of a force multiplier? I'm, I'm not that's <laughs> a force divider. I don't know, but uh, divider, but it, yeah, but it, but that that we're we're seeing that, and that's there's certainly going to be ample room for research once this all ends. The last thing I wanted to talk before we moved on talk about uh, President Biden trip to Europe is the this issue of to have a ceasefire or not to have a ceasefire right now. If you're the Ukrainians right now, if you're, if you're President Zelensky right now, on one hand, you want a ceasefire to get these civilians out, to get a humanitarian corridor, to get these civilians out. On the other hand, there is a fear that Russia will use a ceasefire to regroup and resolve these problems that they've been having thus far. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think Zelensky, I think all the Ukrainian government and, and military, they're under no illusions about the, the games and tricks, which are now, I mean, almost scenery collapsing in, in their level of ridiculousness and, and mm. pathos. I mean, they know that when, when the Russians say, let's have a ceasefire, it's usually give us a chance to regroup. Right. Uh, even if we're going to do so-called green corridors where we evacuate civilians, we've seen evidence that the Russians are opening fire on, you know, uh, sedans full of families trying to evacuate from mm-hmm. and other cities uh, or areas um, however yes you know you are duty-bound as president of this country to do as much as you can um, within your power to alleviate human suffering and there is a great deal of that going on in ukraine as, as we've seen uh, we don't really have figures on how many ukrainian civilians have been killed or injured uh, we have better figures on how many have fled the country also, how many have returned to the country who yeah. now want to take up arms and fight? I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of my other reporters in Kyiv was saying a lot of people who went to Lviv in the last three weeks are, are coming back to Kyiv now because Kyiv mm-hmm. is, is coming back to life and people feel more confident that the capital will endure. Um, but look, you know, I think really what this comes down to is uh, do not trust but verify. If, if Russia says, yes, we'll take a pause in the fighting so you can evacuate people, okay. Um, but you know, the minute we start seeing you shooting at us again, we're, we're just gonna defend ourselves, right? We should be under no um, uncertainty as to the capacity for duplicity here. And, and frankly, look, here's one place where I will, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see Putin's ultimate design of trying to destroy Ukraine uh, diminishing at all. He's given no real indication of that. Um, you know, by all means, keep talking, try to, you know, resolve things through these delegations going to Minsk or wherever they are now. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, there will be a military solution to this conflict. And surprisingly so, or uh, to a lot of people, it may go in Ukraine's favor. Not Russia's. Yeah,
0: no, I'm increasingly, I mean, I've said before, we are either witnessing the end of Ukrainian statehood or the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin. Um, and we're starting to see cracks at the time. Anatoly Chubais. Okay. Uh, resigned yesterday and then left the yep. country. He's reportedly in Turkey. Uh, Sergei Shoigu has not been seen in, what is it, 12, 13 days now? Um, it's becoming yeah. – where is he? Uh, yeah, what's
1: going on? The only Russian ever to be exiled from Siberia is the right. right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean really, when, when have you – in all the wars you've covered, have you ever seen the defense minister go missing for almost two weeks now in the middle of a war? That's unheard yeah. of
1: you know there were there were signs of of these kinds of cracks defections uh and desertions in in the syrian regime uh in 2011 2012 up to 2013 really the thing that saved their bacon of course was russia's military intervention. there's no russia to bail out russia right (laughs) right china i mean for all the 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 talk and reporting every china expert i've asked do you think they're going to send weapons they say no we don't we don't see that yeah Um, economic aid assistance sure that's one thing but you know beijing is very nervous and they feel very awkward about this because they know that this could blow up in their face as well um so look uh you know i, I think it's very simple so long as ukraine wants to fight so long as ukraine has the resources and the resupplies to continue to fight they certainly have the manpower this on paper sort of bat order of battle that was given many months ago, 260,000 versus nine, this was this was also kind of Potemkin nonsense. And Potemkin though in a weird way because it, the Ukrainians had way more than everybody in the West had, had imagined because nobody counted on the National Guard, territorial defense numbers, reservists, mm-hmm. even the SBU and the police were militarized. So they had hundreds of thousands already there and now they're recruiting more people. Um, so long as they wanna fight, we should help them. I mean, within reason, right? I mean, I was just off on the phone with somebody else about an hour ago saying, you know, we've been having these debates uh, almost kind of into a parodic level about the no-fly zone. We mustn't do a no-fly zone, it's gonna be World War III. Look, a no-fly zone was never gonna happen because right. that's war with Russia, right? right. The Ukrainians, in, in, in actuality, perhaps not in rhetoric because President Zelensky has to kind of press this moral imperative and he has to give kind of stirring and poignant oratory just as a matter of course. But in actuality, the Ukrainian military and certainly Ukrainian military intelligence, they had already moved on from a no-fly zone early days. They were talking about give us those Polish MiGs, right, which was another kind of snafu. Now they're on to give us armed drones, give us ground-based air defense systems that we already know how to use because they were made in the Soviet period and all that kind of thing. They know that they were the only ones going to fight this war. You know, I've been trying to disabuse a lot of people who think that they're trying to right. drag us into this conflict. Absolutely not. They no. I for 8 years every Ukrainian I've talked to since I've been traveling to the country has said, "We know that this is our struggle. We just ask for the maximum amount of help that you can give us." Yep. You know, so we can we can do it.
0: Yeah, um, no, and I would agree with you there. It seems it seems that that's what they're doing. I mean, Zelensky's doing what he has to do. Um mm-hmm. and we're not going to give him a no-fly zone. That's that's clear. Um but we, you know, we we're, we can give them almost everything short of that. And that, that that's a good segue into the, the next thing I want to talk about. President yeah. Br- Biden, of course, arrived in Brussels on Wednesday night um, to meet EU leaders and to attend a NATO summit and also uh, uh, to meet G7 leaders. Um, prior to the president's arrival, uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, announced that the alliance would be doubling the number of battle groups on its eastern flank, doubling it. Um, what do you think the president needs to accomplish on this trip, Michael? How do you see? How do you view? It's being billed as this the most important trip of his presidency. Um, his presidency is only a year old, so that's, that's a, a pretty low bar. But I still think, regardless, this is going to be uh, history is going to show this is one of his most important foreign trips. What do you What do you think the president needs to accomplish here?
1: Well, look, I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche now that the greatest gift to NATO in, you know, 50 years has been Vladimir Putin. And that began in 2014, but it's now really escalated in earnest um, in the last six months. I think it's good that, you know, we're showing that we're fortifying the borders of, of, you know, the world's most impressive military alliance. I mean, ask yourself the following, Brian, if Poland and Romania were not in NATO, uh-huh. how might this conflict have right. gone differently? Uh, at what point would the Russians have really started to interdict supply lines of everything from javelins to n right. Christ, even Turkish TB2, Bayraktar drones, are still being sent to the Ukrainians. And I can't even tell if they're being flown into Western Ukraine, or they're being flown to Poland and driven across right. the border in massive trucks or flatbeds or whatever. The Russians have not hit these countries or even come close to doing so, because they know, ultimately, Article 5, if it is, if this is a sacrosanct covenant, as even President Obama said in 2014, when he didn't really want to pick a fight with Russia over Ukraine at all, then if it's tested, it has to be enforced. And Putin, that would be the end of everything. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hearing oh, he's, he might use chemical weapons close to the Polish border. Well, if he does that, what's the guarantee he's not going to end up asphyxiating a bunch of poles? And what is that? That's going to not invoke Article 5? That's not like shooting down a Turkish jet or vice versa, and I mean, kind of, you know, negotiating it on the sly. That that is a serious escalation. Yeah. So I think that's good that the president's doing this. Um, I think it's also put paid to this idea that you know these countries that have wanted and have bent over backwards to sh- to join NATO since the collapse of the Soviet Union, they did so for a reason. They understood right. the existential threat that Russia posed to them. I mean, what where would the Baltic states be right now, without right having Exceeded, right, in terms of both their capacity to arm Ukraine and also do the kind of intelligence gathering that I alluded to earlier, which has far exceeded, in my view, uh, the quality of, of our own intelligence capability. So that's to the good. Now in terms of what other things, in terms of you know, kit and, and weaponry, we should be sending the Ukrainians. I don't know. Again, I'm not a military specialist. I'm, I, I'm sure I will find out because the Ukrainians will start to tell me we, we want the following. But no, I think it's a good show of solidarity. I've also heard rumors he plans to do a trip to the near the border. To Poland, to- he's going to go to Poland. But I think going to, be- go to Poland, right? And so he should meet with refugees. He should hear directly from the Ukrainian people. I think that also sends a strong message to to Moscow. Um, look, I, I give this administration pretty good marks. I think so they, they they were very smart to come out with the sort of you know this this very forward footed campaign of leaking intelligence to the press. At first, I was very skeptical and I worried that if they were wrong uh, and there was no war, you know, this is just more egg on the face of the American IC. But they were right. And they almost got it right down to the date, right? I think they were a little more off the ball in terms of how the war would go. But that's just a failure of imagination. You know, one of the things, the difficulties of being a journalist doing this, and believe me, I I have PTSD from Syria, um, because that did not go the way that people in my position would have liked it to have gone, is you know you spend all this time, you listen to Ukrainians, and they tell you they were wrong about this war happening. In, in other words, they didn't think it would happen, but they were wrong for the right reasons. Why do I say that? They didn't think he'd be stupid enough to do this. Uh, one one deputy of, of the, the RADA told me, this guy's gonna choke on Ukraine if he comes in here. Does he even realize that? And I, I, I had to, I was questioning my own judgment. I thought I was being gaslighted. You know, I was like, mm. these these people are so naive. These people don't know what's coming. They're going to be destroyed. They were right. Yeah. They were right. Yeah. We were, I, I don't know if, if the term Orientalist has any currency anymore, if it can be applied. You know, the West looking at an Eastern European country the way it, it has been historically in the Edward Saidian sense. But I think we were being Orientalist. I think we were not. Mm taking them at their own estimation of themselves. We were robbing them of their own uh, capacity for understanding an adversary. They have been fighting for eight years and we have not. I mean, there is no NATO country that has this much kind of institutional ingrained memory of what Russia's military capability is, right? I mean, a near peer adversary that's been at war with Russia for eight years. They understand the foe much better than we do. And they they have proven correct. So what more do we need to to, to do to, Show them that they should be our tutors, not vice versa.
0: Right. That's the joke that's making the rounds in Ukraine. Instead of Ukraine joining NATO, NATO should join Ukraine, which is um, pretty, pretty apropos. I mean, there's a few things that are coming out um, regarding Biden's visit. I mean, the U.S. is going to uh, increase LNG shipments to Europe. Um, I'm wondering if that is a possibly a prelude to uh, pushing the Europeans to impose energy sanctions on Russia. I, I don't know if our LNG can really make up for the lost Russian gas. There's that. There appears to be a dispute in NATO about whether or not we should draw a red line about the use of chemical weapons. I get nervous every time I hear those two words, red and line, put together yeah. in the context of a conflict for very obvious reasons. Are you hearing anything along the, the polls want to put this NATO peacekeeping force in Ukraine, which is obviously a non-starter? I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the polls are doing there. I think they're just trying to move the parameters of the debate a little bit. Um, but the, and the, the, this issue with the MiGs is still out there. Are you hearing anything along a lot of these things? That are going to be discussed
1: in in Brussels when Biden's there? Okay, look, with the MiGs, I know a little bit more about that because I I did some reporting early days when this whole thing went sideways and I I wanted to understand why. And from what I gather and from good sources I have in Warsaw, um, there was a a program that had been, it might have been in Coet, but it was there to supply Ukraine with MiG 29s and to have that inventory backfilled by uh, American aircraft, F 16s. Uh, What happened was. The Polish uh, government, meaning the the cabinet, the prime minister's office, they were so high on their own supply about doing something clandestine and and funky to help the Ukrainians, they started briefing people about it, diplomats. That's what led to uh, Joseph Borrell, the EU right. foreign minister, coming up and making this shocking disclosure that the European Union is not only giving arms to the Ukrainians but also fighter jets. Then you know inevitably you could write the script with crayon, the international <laughs> sentence on this story, and then the polls are like. Who, me? You know, they, they're, they're completely <laughs> flat-footed. And then it becomes this hot potato, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll send it to, uh, to Romschein. Romschein. yeah, Air Base, and, and the Americans are like, that's the wrong direction from Ukraine. And, you know, it's, <laughs> I think this, this could have been a fa- I'm also hearing, look, a lot of people saying that MiG-29s wouldn't help them for various yeah. reasons. Uh, I know one active duty uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the US Air Force who's like, actually, you know, first of all, they have the pilots. It wouldn't take much to train them up on this variety of MiG-29. I mean, they're virtually the same aircraft. The the issue would be stripping all the NATO equipment out of it, repainting the thing, reflagging it, obviously. Um, The other question is, would this be an escalation to the Russians? I mean, to my mind, look, if a Russian's getting turned into hamburger by a Bayraktar TB2 drone, which is supplied by a NATO member state, does he give a shit, frankly, if it's that? aircraft or if it's a MiG 29 sent right, from Poland. right right I mean I, this is this all seems just very I mean almost
0: cool. kind of like well, we the, don't know what's so escalatory. That's inside Putin's head. That's the only exactly. place where you know it's escalatory. And what yeah. I agree with you, what's the difference between a javelin or, or a stinger or 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 a MiG-29? There, there really right. is no difference. The problem is logistics. Getting a Stingers and Javelins into Ukraine is a lot easier than getting a MiG-29 into, into Ukraine, right? You gotta fly it into contested airspace. That to well, me do was do
1: the- But do you? I've I've seen evidence that you can put one of these fighter jets on a flatbed. Uh-huh. And drive it, you know, by 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 ground. I mean, I, okay. I don't know. I, I, I think we we we're not thinking as creatively enough, right. and not giving enough credit to how some of these other things are getting into the country. Like I said, how are the how are the Bayrock getting in? Are they being flown into Western Ukraine because there's an airport? I forget the city, but it's quite close to the Polish border. So much so that they think they technically share airspace. Uh-huh. And the Russians wouldn't dare bomb this airport for fear of exactly what I alluded to before, which is provoking the polls and therefore triggering Article 5. Uh, look, again, I think what happens is these things get so politicized, and then all of the sort of you know military analysts come in and try to pick it apart and say, well, you know, they're not going to help. And if the Ukrainians say we want them, if we have the capacity to give it to the Ukrainians, we should do it, even just right, for morale, right. even just as a show of, of solidarity. Let them figure out how to how to play with them. Right. I mean, they could even strip the goddamn things and and use the munitions that are attached right. to them or that come with them for their own purposes. I've seen them using hobby store drones, attaching Molotov cocktails, and blowing up Russians with those things. Quadcopters you can buy on Amazon for Christ's sake. These are very creative people, a yeah. very creative military. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I, one of the things I, we we need to work the problem. We need to get stop focusing on these these bright shiny objects like a no fly zone or MIGs and say what do the Ukrainians need to defend themselves and let's let's get it to them. Uh, let's work the problems. That's where I think we should be. All right, this is a good way to segue into the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the implications of the U.S. accusation that the Russian military is committing war crimes in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, and author of a forthcoming book on the GRU. I'd also like to remind you that you can subscribe Subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 дні мецної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинувались. So U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Wednesday that the U.S. government has determined that members of Russia's military committed war crimes in Ukraine. This came after President Biden publicly called Putin a war criminal, which led to a hysterical response from the Kremlin, which called the comment, unforgivable i guess the truth hurts michael this is a topic i'm planning to devote an entire podcast to at some point in the future hopefully with some former war crimes prosecutors i'm actually working on that at the moment but i wanted to tease this a bit now with you given the president and the secretary of state's remarks why do you think the u.s is raising this now is this part of a strategy or I is think- it just a moral statement
1: well i think it's it's a reaction to international outcry and and a preponderance of documentary evidence that they are indeed committing war crimes so you know i'm sure it was put to anthony blinken or whoever at the state department do you have a comment about this i mean you know look us government it it, it, the the wheels turn slowly right i mean we've been talking about this in terms of getting ukraine prepared and arming them and so on um i'm glad they made this statement uh it's not anything particularly groundbreaking to myself i mean i having watched the way that russia prosecuted its its campaign in syria where they were bombing hospitals and bakeries conducting so-called double tap uh sorties where they would bomb a facility or a civilian infrastructure and then wait for the rescue teams and the the first right. responders to come and then bomb it again um there's ample evidence of that uh, and also frankly russia's i mean their complicity in bashar al-assad's chemical weapons at attacks which number in the hundreds right what did they do they would create this sort of disinformation campaign to suggest that we have intelligence that the white helmets which is a a civilian rescue organization is plotting to use chemical weapons in syria or the free syrian army or the some jihadist organization and then lo and behold there would be a chemical weapon attack it would later be attributed to the assad regime so russia it's there is strong evidence in that respect too at least was an accomplice before and after the fact Mm -hmm. to its client state's uh, use of WMD. Um, And look, I mean... (laughs) Those of us who've been sort of wondering for a long time about the Moscow apartment bombings in 1999. (laughs) No, but
0: I'm not wondering about them. I was in Moscow for those
1: things. (laughs) You were there. Um, You know, David Satter was the first American to be journalist to be kicked out of the country since the collapse of the Soviet Union, who wrote a whole book on, on the subject. John Dunlop at the Hoover Institution. I have yet to meet a single former officer of the clandestine services in this country who doesn't think that that was done by the FSB. I Uh, I have yet
0: to meet somebody when I was there. Nobody at the time in real time thought this was anything but a false flag operation.
1: And it's not a coincidence that every Russian journalist or uh, Duma deputy or lawyer – or in the case of Alexander Litvinenko, defector, who really raised a fuss about this, ended up either in prison or, or beaten dead. up or dead. Um, and, yeah, there's never been a credible investigation. And, and look at the two people who would have been most responsible. Putin was FSB director only months before, right, or a little more than that, became prime minister and then anointed president. And it was Patrushev, yeah, who's, yeah. who's now secretary of the Security Council and very much, you know, in the swim in this in this campaign as well. So again, I put to you, if, if we are in agreement that this that was a, a false flag operation- And the and preponderance actually, of evidence suggests yeah, that there's and, no doubt about that. The entire raison d'etre of this man's presidency, his entire regime is built atop a mass grave of Russian corpses, mm-hmm. right? So if he's treating his own people this way, I know he thinks of Ukrainians as his own people and his own revisionist historical narrative, but they're not. But if he's treating Russians this way, why would we ever imagine that he would treat Ukrainians or Syrians or Libyans any better? Um, it's just, you know, war crimes? Russia? Really? I'm <laughs> sorry. Color me unshocked here. You know? well, no, none
0: of us are shocked that, I mean, we, we, we all know what, what this regime has done. I was listening to a podcast this morning with Carlotta Gall. Um, the excellent reporter who, 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 uh, who covered the first and second Chechen wars and then went on to an illustrious career as a war correspondent. And she was saying it's remarkable to her watching the campaign in Ukraine, how much it resembles the first Chechen war mm-hmm. uh, so far. Now, the caveat here is that, when does it turn into the second Chechen war, which had yeah. a very different outcome than the first Chechen war? But Michael, I wanted to game this forward a little bit because when you when you accuse uh, a party to a conflict of war crimes, it suggests that you cannot negotiate with that party, right? I mean, does this is this the U.S. saying really? we are not gonna we are not gonna talk to? I mean, I'm I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I, I am actually very glad that the administration is calling things what they are. Um, because yeah, you' basically uh, let, let letting Putin get off the hook for this for a long time, um, thus the Kremlin's hysterical response. But how does this how does this change the nature of how we move forward on this, or does it at all?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we don't have to plumb the historic, the annals of um, you know distant American history. I mean, the Biden administration accused China of committing genocide in Xinjiang right. against not just Uyghurs, but also the sort of Turkic uh, Muslim minority population. The United States boycotted the Beijing Olympics. president of the United States just had a call with his Chinese counterpart the other day, basically to essentially prevail upon him not to help Russia, not to bail it out militarily. Um, we're dealing with China, despite their being right. guilty of genocide. Uh, Does that mean that we're not going to... I mean, this is the other thing. It's like, oh my God, it's going to be so dangerous if we don't talk to Russia. We have never not talked to Russia. We have never not talked to the Soviet Union, even at the the, the darkest days of war. war. There was always back channels. There were always lines of communication, uh, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know, yes, maybe there, you know, generals aren't returning each other's calls the way they used to, but it wasn't so long ago, Brian. I mean, one of the things that's been very clarifying and edifying about this war in particular, a lot of these former assumptions or talking points or just kind of platitudes, you know? Yes, Russia can be a partner in counterterrorism cooperation. Uh, even recently, the, the, after the summit in Geneva that Biden and Putin had, um, what, less than a year ago, let's have a co- cooperation mechanism for cybersecurity. I mean, I'm sorry, when you're when you're the standard bearer of a political party that arguably— at least by the lights of your own political operatives, certainly lost an election because of Russian cyber espionage, and and actually more than that, an operation, an active Mm -hmm. measure. Suddenly you want these guys to be your partners in cybersecurity? I mean, this is a joke. This this has all been satire, at least to me. So now this stuff seems to be falling apart. Nobody believes it anymore. And yes, you get people who are, you know, I mean, look, we've seen in the last five, six years, you get a lot of grifters, a lot of you know, sort of newly minted experts on everything from nuclear proliferation to cyber warfare to Russian intelligence services operations, and so on and so forth. But a lot of the stuff that we have been saying, you and I and, and several others for a long, long time, and sort of scratching our heads or wondering why America kind of keeps up this pantomime, knowing that none right. of these things amount anything. Suddenly, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel a bit vindicated. You know, finally, now you guys get it, right? And it, it only took. A, a, a murderous campaign of conquest. Uh, for 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 right. suddenly the, the lights come on everywhere. So you know, yes, we will talk to the Russians. Are they going to be our partner? Are they going to be our friend? Uh, let me be cynical. I can see. And and you you asked before. What's one of the, the the purposes of or should be the purposes of Biden going to Europe and trying? Honestly, I'm already beginning to see. We, 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 we Two weeks ago, we were talking about, oh, my God, the Germans are sending weapons to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. The French have found some, you know, moral and, and geopolitical fortitude. And Macron wants to be, I don't know, leader of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. I'm already beginning to see wobbliness in both of these countries. The attention span has contracted. All of a sudden, well, you know, we did everything we could. And let's just let's take a strategic pause for now and see how things play out. Let's not keep the pressure on. Um Also, the international media is looking at other things now all of a sudden. Uh, Biden needs to keep the focus on Ukraine. I do think that this is this is the seismic conflict and crisis of the 21st century, at least so far. Uh, And if we lose sight of it, I'm not saying it's World War Two or or, or on par with World War Two yet. And I'm certainly not saying it's a prelude to World War Three. But if we lose sight of it now, Ukrainians will suffer. Russia will feel the wind at its back. And that, that is the worst strategic miscalculation we can make. The, pre, the, the uh, president of Estonia – I'm sorry, the prime minister of Estonia had a very good op-ed in the York yes. Times saying exactly this. Um, do not let Putin think that he's winning. Yeah. And don't let him win because if he thinks that he's winning, game over, right? So let him feel the pain. Let him feel like he's losing because he is. Yeah, no.
0: I read I I read that that uh, that 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 excellent uh, op-ed by the Estonian Prime Minister right before this the the uh, recording this program. I mean, the thing about this and the thing that Biden and Blinken's remarks about uh, war crimes being committed, for me, this is a it's a it's a very clarifying moment. The mask is finally off, and yes, I do yeah. feel a bit vindicated, Michael, because you and I have both been very hawkish on this question for as long as we've known each other, um, and have talked about it on this program and. and past iterations of this program in the past, it's very clarifying. I wonder where that's going to lead. I mean, I see, see this as a paradigm shifting event, um, and I do put it on par with 9-11 or World War II in terms of how it's going to shift it. One of the things I say to my students is now, I said, this is as serious as a heart attack, and we are now moving into the world that I grew up in. Uh, it's not going to look yeah. like the world you grew up in. Uh, we're, we're moving into this world of a divided a divided Europe and a Cold War type Situation. Uh, that's not to say it's going to look exactly like the old Cold War. Um, p- looking going back on before we wrap up just on the whole issue of war crimes. I mean, it's not just President Biden and Secretary Blinken who have said this. The International Criminal Court has indeed opened up an investigation. And now, neither the U.S. nor Russia are signatories to the International Criminal Court, so I don't know how this is going to proceed. There's talk of maybe an an ad hoc tribunal. Do you actually can you envision a world in which Russians are held held accountable for war crimes in Ukraine, Um, whether we're talking about Putin and Shoigu and people at the top and Lavrov, or 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 others, commanders in the field, and so on? Can you envision a world where that actually happens?
1: I can envision a world in which uh, captured Russian soldiers or uh, flag officers in Ukraine are put on trial in free democratic Ukraine for war crimes. Mm. More likely, they'll be traded back for Ukrainian POWs. Do I ever, can I can I imagine a day in which Vladimir Putin or anybody from the general staff in Moscow is, is sat in the dock in The Hague? No, I think frankly, the, the end of Putin will either be of natural causes, because everybody dies, or frankly, he'll be taken out by his own. Um, And, you know, that's a whole other discussion. And, you know, I've been listening with obsessive attention to detail to our mutual friend Andrei Soldatov who's reported on the cracks and the fissures in the FSB and the kind of intelligence apparatus. But, you know, Russia doesn't really have very seamless transitions, as you know. I mean, things don't go (laughs) so so easily or smoothly. so I yeah I mean and that's a concern right and that that's another factor here um, which when people say oh the goal is to bleed Russia white in Ukraine I don't really think it is because the, the the stuff that's coming out in the press from pundits who you know essentially. Retail what they're told from very high levels in whatever the administration is in Washington, is oh, a uh, uh, losing Putin is a more dangerous Putin. We must be afraid of what he's going to do. And oh, by the way, after him, you know, we're not going to get some cuddly democratic figure. It could be a crazy ultra nationalist. Uh, if they take Zhirinovsky off the <laughs> off his his life support system, I mean, it'll be somebody like him. I mean, remember the messaging about Navalny, too, from the, not only from the Russian side, but a lot of Americans like, oh, this guy's dangerous. He's an ultra-nationalist. I mean, Navalny said, that, you know, this is not a war with the West or much less Ukraine. This is a war with our own kind of sclerotic right. elites, right? Um, so, yeah, look, I, I don't see it as, I mean, America is is can be cynical and it can be idealistic. And I think the problems we've had in the last certainly 25 years of when I've been sort of cognizant of american foreign policy is we are cynical when we ought to be idealistic like we were in the lead up to this war with in misjudging and, un, and underestimating the ukrainians and we can be a little too idealistic when we ought to be more cynical um and especially in terms of you know democracy spread at the end of a bayonet in parts of the world where there simply has been no tradition of this and it's it's impossible to install right. um in this case i i certainly hope that um you know there is a a, now a recognition that putin is dangerous no matter if he's winning or losing look Mm -hmm. what he's doing now uh and we should not as i said before we should not alleviate the pressure on him Uh, we should be clever and strategic and thoughtful and creative without doing stupid dangerous things that miscalculate and and could lead to a greater conflagration but nor should we start predicting the future in terms of what's going to happen in Russia if and when he's gone and how much worse it could be. We don't know. I mean, again, our predictive capacity is not nearly as good as we'd like to think it is. Um, And yeah, I mean, look, I I did an interview uh, two weeks ago with uh, Andrei Kozira, the former Russian foreign minister. Mm -hmm. To my mind, anyway, had a very counterintuitive and fascinating take about NATO expansion, all that, but also that that seminal period in from 1991 to 1994, when he thought the real failure of America, um, and we've all, you know, we've discussed and we've read the books about McKinsey consultants going in and therapy and, you know, Gadarene privatization and robbing the the Russian state and all that, but he said the real problem was America did not realize that it had a strategic interest in Russian liberal democracy. It thought that this stuff would just kind of carry aloft of its own historical momentum, that there weren't dark forces gathering, both, you know, unreconstructed commies and ultra-nationalistic crazies that could actually destroy everything that had been attained from 1989 onward. And, you know, I think looking back, he was right. We were a little too glib, a little too self-satisfied and triumphalist about winning the cold war we didn't really see that this was a necessary thing now does that have to that history have to replay itself if there is internal regime change in russia not necessarily and i hope we all learn from our mistakes yeah
0: yeah, no, this is something I'm worried about in terms of predictive value. One, I, I one one quote I I always use on this is when Putin regime when the Putin regime falls, it'll fall in a single day and it'll be replaced by something just like it, and that's Gleb Pavlovsky, who is one of Putin's original image makers. And I think that's what we're going to be facing. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that we don't repeat the mistakes of the '90s. I think there's a lot of people who think we have a Putin problem, and the minute Putin goes away, the problem goes away. But we don't have a Putin problem. We have a, the the problem with Russia is systemic. The problem with Russia is this: is that Putin didn't come out of thin air. He came out of, of a system, and that system is going to be there um, after Putin leaves. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about what the. Uh, what, what what it's going to look like, and are we going to fall in love again and and make the same mistakes we made in the 90s, although that is the subject for another podcast. Um, we're bumping up against the end here. I'm looking at the clock, so that's I'm going to have to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Thank you, Michael, for an enlightening discussion, as always.
1: My pleasure, Brian. Always a pleasure to chat
0: you. Got to have you back on more often. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion, and Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.